Father, we, uh, we come before You this morning as a gathered community on the brink of a new year. Um, and as Your Word has been shared this morning, thus far You have been with us. Lord, we just declare that is true. Uh, you have been with us. You will continue to be with us. You're here this morning, Father. We gather to glorify Your name as we gather as Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start actually in verse 1. Um, the section that I'm going to focus in on a little bit this morning is verses 14 through 17, but it's part of a bigger context. It's what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 9. He's setting the stage for what this new kingdom is going to look like. And so I want to go back. It's been almost a month since we were in the first part of Matthew. So I want to read it through so you can hear in context what's going on. Starting in verse 1. Says Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this point, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their hearts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Verse 9 As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the part we're going to kind of focus in and hopefully bring to conclusion this morning is this part. Then Jesus, John's disciples came to Jesus and asked Him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while He is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And what I believe that Jesus is doing here is He is setting the identity markers of what this new community in the kingdom of God is going to look like. Deeson pointed out a few weeks ago, inner healing is central to the kingdom. And Jesus is ushering this in. It's a healing community. We have experiences here at River's Edge that would point to that. The word that was shared this morning, thus far the Lord has been with us. 
God has been healing people. God has been healing their hearts. He's been healing inside of them who they are. God has been doing that in a miraculous way. It's a, it's a sign marker of the kingdom. Karsh pointed out the call of Matthew and how radically different Matthew's life was after he encountered Jesus. Because people drawn into a calling community will necessarily see change in their lives as they move closer and closer to Jesus. And this whole section of Matthew, Matthew 9, 1-17 through 17 specifically, this whole section of Matthew is announcing this new kingdom. And life in this new kingdom is radically different than the one the religious elite of, the, of Jesus' day were expecting. Jesus is explaining in one sense the who, the what, the when, the where, and the how of this new kingdom and how a person is invited into this new kingdom. And that struck a chord with the Pharisees. To use the vernacular of the area I grew up in, it it stuck in their craw. They didn't like it. They were seeing people's lives change. They were seeing people moving towards Jesus, and they didn't like what they were seeing because it wasn't what they were expecting. Because in their minds, they were the who. They were the what. They were doing what needed to be done to be in the kingdom of God, to usher in God's kingdom. They were the ones who knew the stories and practiced them on a daily basis. They were the ones who were supposed to be a part of what God was going to do. And that kind of begs the question for us, I think. Especially moving into 2018. How and what criteria should be used to evaluate who is a Christian. Coulter and I experienced this recently when we went on a mission trip to South Africa, and I'm going to share a little bit more on that later. But as we look in the global context of the church, if we look at what does it mean to be a Christian, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, that's what this passage is pointing to. Does it matter? if someone affirms a particular set of doctrinal points? Does it matter if someone has to espouse a certain dress code or what they eat or what they drink? Must he or she follow a specific moral code? Since the advent of modern missions, and especially the modern missions movement, such questions have been particularly pressing. When you go out into a, a third world context and they don't speak our language, the language we're speaking here this morning, and they don't dress the way we do and they don't eat the things that we eat, and believe me, I've been in some contexts in the last year that they don't eat the things that we eat. Culture could tell you stories. I've got pictures. You don't want to see them, believe me. But what Jesus is saying is what matters is who is moving towards him. In the 1970s, there was a guy by the name of Paul Hebert, and he applied um, a specific branch of mathematics to this question. Probably will only excite a few of us in the room today. I was thinking of you, Brent, when I was preparing this message. But what we're going to do is we're going to apply a set theory to this question. This is what Hebert did about 40 years ago. And what he basically says is, using set theory, this type of mathematics, he proposed that the matter could be evaluated 
differently depending on whether one subscribes to a bounded set or a centered set. And a bounded set, hopefully we have a picture of this, and it's hard to see right now, but there's, there's, a, there's a circle and there's a bunch of people inside the circle. They're little smiley faces. Those represent the Pharisees. They're smiling right now because they think they know what it takes to be in the kingdom. They think that they know what it means to be a part of what God is going to be doing. And this type of set, this bounded set, it's static. It's all about boundaries. It's all about Christians are being those people who affirm the right beliefs and the right practice of the right behaviors. And those who don't aren't part of this set. Now, some of us in this room perhaps grew up in environments that were very bounded. Very specific delineations of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. You do this, you don't do that. You say this, you don't say that. You go here, you don't go there. The bounded set didn't mean they weren't followers of Jesus. It simply meant there were specific boundaries that delineated who you were and what group you were a part of. And then there's the centered set. And this type of set is dynamic. It's all about movement in a particular direction. And and if you look at this set, the, the, the circle in the middle is Jesus. And then there's a bunch of smiley faces around Jesus. Some of them are following Jesus. Some of them are moving towards Jesus. Some of them are on the outside, but they are about to move towards Jesus. Okay? And if you notice now, the, the, the Pharisees, the smiley faces have turned into little frowny faces because they're realizing that the kingdom that they thought that was going to be ushered in is different than what they were expecting. And all the rules that they've been following and all the things that they've been doing weren't what Jesus was saying was going to get them into this new kingdom. There's one little smiley face Pharisee down there because there is a, an occasional Nicodemus who met with Jesus you know, at night and he had questions and he's definitely moving towards Jesus even though he doesn't want anybody to know. So we've got this bounded set which is a very close, circular boundary of who you are and what you have to do to be a follower of Jesus. And then you have Jesus as this centered set. Using a centered set model, if movement has been made towards Jesus, the person who's moving towards Jesus would be considered entering into the family of God. And in recent years, this centered set paradigm has been adopted by a number of Western Christian thinkers, especially in missiology, the study of missions and how we take to the world the story of Jesus. And what they've found is, in some of these circles the people who have been in place in these countries who are coming from a bounded set mindset are still having difficulties sharing who Jesus is. Sharing what it means to be a part of His family. Some have started to say, you have to do this. You have to believe in this. This is what orthodoxy means. This is what right thinking is. And regarding orthodoxy, centered set advocates or centered set people who hold to this 
kind of mindset are not so comfortable with detailed and dogmatic doctrinal statements. It's more about relationship and it's more about entering into this, this relationship with Jesus. And, and I bring this up because I think it speaks to one point that Jesus was all about. And that is, Jesus is about people moving towards Him. Jesus is about people moving towards Him. Because what really matters is are we moving towards Jesus or are we moving away from Jesus? Let me try to put that in context for you based on this story that my son Coulter shared about our recent trip to South Africa. There's a man who leads a church in uh, one of the townships outside of Ladybrand. His name is Letha Kolasang. He's 46 years old. He grew up for 24 years of his life under the, the rule of apartheid. Lives in a township because the township was where everybody who wasn't white lived. That's where they were put. That's where they were sent. That's where they were allowed to be. In fact, they weren't allowed to be anywhere else unless they had a card. A card that says they could be over in Ladybrand, or they could be in Johannesburg, or they could be in Clarence, or they could be in any number of white cities. And some 22 years after apartheid was abolished, the ramifications and the oppression still remains. Because you can't go anywhere in the area around where we were and not feel the tension from both sides. From the white side and from the black side, if you want to call it that. If you want to polarize it in that way. Coulter asked in a conversation, we were doing this building project with them, and Coulter asked Lifa in a conversation, what was it like to grow up in apartheid? Lifa thought about it, and he said it was tough. It was tough. It was hard. But he said a profound thing next. He said, I came to realize that what the white man needs is he needs to experience the love of Jesus. He just needs to move towards Jesus, in other words. And we saw countless examples of that, of people moving towards Jesus. It didn't matter what the color of your skin was. It mattered what direction you were moving. It mattered which camp you were choosing to be a part of. Lifa, after we had gotten back, he sent me this text I wanted to share with you this morning because you're a part of this here at River's Edge. We support the church family called Sepong Church. Sepong means hope in their language. And it has become a beacon of hope in this neighborhood. This is from Lifa on the 18th of December. He said, Hi Tracy, I hope you and your team traveled safely under the protection of the living God. I'd like to say to you, you guys are all our heroes. We at Sepong Church say thanks very much for the work you've done, you and the team. You, to much, you, you have done much more than we expected. Send my thanks to all the people who take part and make sure to, make, to make sure this project is successful. My thanks much. You have all won my heart. I will remember you in my prayers and please send my love to your church and say thank you very much. See, this is a man who's been moving towards Jesus for 26 years. 
And in the midst of having probably the biggest reason to hold animosity within himself, he simply says what people need is to experience the love of Jesus. They need to move towards Jesus. And in our story today, that we read earlier, Matthew is clearly moving towards Jesus. Carr shared about this a few weeks ago. He, he picked up, he left, he left his toll booth, he left his prosperity behind, and he followed Jesus. And he found himself suddenly in the presence of Jesus at his house for dinner. And look who finds themselves having dinner with Jesus. A number of people. Because what Jesus is doing is He's defining a new community. He's defining a Jesus community. What does it look like to be a part of this new community, this new reality, this new kingdom reality? This community is radically different. And He tells these two parables as the exclamation points on what He is doing. The parables being the new cloth being sold on, sewn onto an old an old garment, and the new wine going into old wineskins. What happens if that takes place is both are discarded. Both are ruined. He's doing a new thing. And he wants us to know by putting these two exclamation points on this entire passage that this section of Jesus' ministry is about this new kingdom that's breaking in. It's not going to be without its difficulties, though. Because life in this new kingdom can sometimes be messy. I mean, just take a look at the list of the disciples that were there at this dinner. Matthew 10.24 has this list of disciples. First was Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Do you notice that three of the people up there have additional descriptors after their name? One of them is Matthew the tax collector. Pretty, pretty well-liked guy in that, in that room, I would imagine, right? Maybe by the other tax collectors. Certainly not by the Pharisees. Certainly not by the, the rest of the disciples of Jesus. You notice another one down at the bottom there? Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was in the first century? A zealot was a person who was sold out to destroying Rome. Everything that they did and everything that they thought about was about getting Rome out of their occupied Jerusalem. Out of their occupied area. And that was the zeal that he carried. And everything that had to do with Rome, he hated. In fact, 40 years later, it was the zealots who tried to overthrow Rome, and that's when Rome essentially fell and Jerusalem and the, 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 the people went up into the mountain into the hideout, the rest of the Jewish people. If anybody in that room had reason to hate Matthew the tax collector, it was Simon the Zealot. And yet what Jesus did was He drew him in to this small, elite, 
circle of friends. And for three years, they spent time together. They got to know each other. And I would imagine if we were to go back to that circle, can you go back one slide to the, uh, to the, to the uh, picture again? I mean, if I'm, if I'm Matthew on this side, Simon the Zealot is far, as far away from Matthew as he can be. He didn't want anything to do with this guy. You ever... Well, there goes that. Wow. Jesus is creating this new community, this new kingdom reality. And in doing so, he's announcing the new paradigm of the kingdom. So that's a little on the who and the what and the when of this new kingdom. People who want to move towards Jesus are invited into this new kingdom reality. And now we can move a little bit towards answering the where and the how. In Acts 2.42, one of the famous verses in the church, in, in, the, in the biblical record, it says this, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord, it says, added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's not a coincidence that after Jesus is resurrected, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's left his disciples to carry on this kingdom that he has inaugurated in. It's not a coincidence that eating and drinking together were a big part of it. I believe it's why Jesus uses so many examples of eating and drinking with people as an example of this kingdom breaking in. As an example of why Matthew had Jesus over to his home. As an example of why numerous accounts, in fact, there are as many accounts of Jesus eating and drinking with people than there are of Him doing other things. It's a big part of what He expects His people to do. And I want to end with a few thoughts on community and food and the kingdom. And the first is this. Meals and sharing meals together are a celebration of the grace of God. Food and drink matters. Food is a gift from God. And a reminder that life is gift. And meals were designed by God to be eaten in His presence. Eugene Peterson wrote a book a while back called Resurrection Life. And one of the three tenets of resurrection life is resurrection meals. It's sharing meals together. It's not only the meal that, and the table that Jesus has prepared for us, 
But it's sharing real meals together. It's living life together. South Africans call it a braai. Americans call it a barbecue. It's what happens at least six months out of the year in Spokane. Eugene Peterson goes on to point out that two of the most significant acts of restoration that Jesus performed after the resurrection centered around meals. Luke 24 and the walk to Emmaus. The two disciples who are walking to their hometown. The, the two disciples that are, are so upset because they, they have been following Jesus as a disciple and they had not expected Him to be crucified. And they didn't yet know that He was resurrected. And suddenly He shows up and He walks with them and He explains to them what the Scriptures had said and what the Scriptures foretold. And they begged Him, it says, at the end of the day to come in and share a meal with them. And He took the bread and He broke it. And as He was sharing the meal with them, it says, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. It wasn't actually in all of the conversation that Jesus had with them walking on the way. It's supposedly about eight mile and about an eight mile walk from, from where they were to their hometown. So some three hours of conversation that Jesus is sharing with them, and it's sitting down over a simple meal and breaking bread together that they recognized who Jesus was. And then there's the story in John chapter 21. And Jesus and His disciples are out fishing again. Kind of, kind of a bookend to the first story when He had met with them. And they weren't catching any fish. And He says, well, why don't you try throwing your net over on the other side? And they threw it and they pulled up such a large amount of fish that they couldn't count them. And it says 153 big fish were in these nets. Then they recognized Jesus. They came ashore. He's cooking a meal for them. Fish and loaves, it says. And he shares this meal with them. And in the process of sharing this meal with his disciples, he's restoring Peter. And he's setting Peter on a path that is going to radically change the course of history. This new kingdom paradigm that Jesus had been ushering in was taking place right before His eyes. Second thing I think we, we should look at and, 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 and see is that meals are a catalyst for community. We have missional communities here. And missional communities are meant to share meals together when we share our lives together. They're meant to do that. They're meant to be around a table. The book of Acts, right after the outpouring of the Spirit, that's what we see in Acts 2.42. They met together often. They broke bread together. It's a sign that God is among us. It's a sign that God is in the midst of what we're doing. And it said they broke bread together and ate together, and God added to their number daily those who were being saved. And here's how we will know in 2018 that God's Spirit is working in the church, and that is if we're we're sharing our lives with each other. I love how Matt Deason used to say, uh, discipleship is about knowing where each other's pots and pans are in your kitchen. It's living that kind of life together. 
I know that Karsh talked about that three weeks ago when he said he wanted to be more about sharing meals with people he didn't know. It's a hallmark that all of us are called to do and be. Eating together. Living life together. And the third thing is that meals are an invitation to the kingdom. article I read this week says, it's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place. A place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. At its base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's Spirit to move. Setting the table, cooking a meal, eating, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's Spirit can work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. Your table. The table that you set for your friends. The table that you invite your neighbors to. Many of those neighbors were just like the people that Jesus had invited and came with Jesus to Matthew's house for dinner. People that didn't know Him, but yet in His presence they were drawn to Him. Sharing this meal together. Eating together. Laughing together. That's what this community is about. This new community of the kingdom is about celebrating the fact that despite our flaws and failures, Jesus doesn't remain distant from us as He moves right towards the sick, towards the sinners, towards those who know they need to be shown forgiveness and mercy. That's where I was when I met Jesus. I knew I needed to be shown forgiveness and mercy. And I knew I needed Jesus. And He knew I needed Him. And you know, it was in the midst of my friends who had invited me away on a weekend, a Young Life weekend, there was lots of eating and there was lots of drinking, non-alcoholic beverages. There was lots of merriment and there was lots of enjoying time together. And that's when I met Jesus. Jesus wants to form those people, us, I believe, into a community who celebrate life and celebrate forgiveness and celebrate the fact that we're not trapped by our old identity whether it's a bounded religious identity or it's irreligious. It's totally redefined in this new kingdom community of Jesus' people where Jesus is the center and the story of His grace is the center. And that's the dynamics of this new kingdom community centered on Jesus and the one that's available. It's available to us here today it's available to the neighbors that live across from you and right next to you and jesus is asking us to move towards it to move towards him especially in 2018 what's your response let's pray father this morning as we've poured over your word um we just want to acknowledge, Lord, that You are the center. It doesn't matter where we've been. It only matters what You've done. 
and that you stand with open arms, willing and ready to invite those who, who move towards you into this life of grace and truth and forgiveness. This life of fullness that you have come for, this abundant life. And Father, I, I pray that for each of us here today, that as we move uh, into this new year, we stand, Lord, at the precipice of, of, of the unknown 2018. And yet we know that you are with us. Uh, we can stand on the words of 1 Samuel 7.12. Thus far, the Lord is with us. Lord, we know that you will be with us. Let's pray, Lord, for more of you as we move towards you and stay centered in you. In Jesus' name.